0: 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still
2: making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter-Kahn.
0: There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today, as always, are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer Ben Lindberg. Say hello, Ben. Hello. Guys, the European Championships in soccer start today as we record. And I'm going to take a, a page out of the England soccer fan playbook and say it's coming home because Team USA has qualified for the Olympics in baseball with a 4-2 win over Venezuela in the America's qualifying tournament last Saturday. Zach, are you swelling with patriotic mucus right now?
3: I am not. I Good.
0: Ben, how about
3: you? <laughs>
2: Not particularly, though I was intrigued when the roster was announced because it's a really interesting mix of remember some guys, veterans and players who were in the major leagues like five seconds ago and actually promising prospects. So there are some players that I am excited to see in this context. I don't really have a feel for how good this team is relative to its competition. Have you kind of handicapped the baseball Olympics here? How does Team USA stack up?
0: but we don't know what the roster is going to be like because this is still in flux. You can't take anybody from a 40 man roster, which led to the, the semi promising prospects. Plus the remember some guys, guys. Uh, And one of the starters from team USA, Luke Williams has been called up to the Phillies and has uh, made the most of his brief appearance in the major leagues so far. So there's going to be some turnover. Uh, The guy I'm most excited about is Eddie Alvarez, who, is a third baseman now and was recently an Olympic silver medalist in short track speed skating. And so if Team USA, if he makes a roster and Team USA medals, he would become the first man since 1932 to win medals in both the Winter and Summer Olympics.
2: That is pretty impressive. And not only has it not happened in a really long time, at least for a a male competitor, but also I think as you noted once before, the previous athlete to have pulled that off did it in, you know, somewhat more similar <laughs> events than baseball and short track speed skating, speed skating. There's not a whole lot of carryover between those two. So that'd be pretty good for the bragging rights when it comes to all around athletes or two way players or whatever we're going to call that.
0: Yeah, he can really shove it in Clara Hughes's face the next time they <laughs> hang out.
2: Right.
3: I just think that having been to the World Baseball Classic, having watched the World Baseball Classic very intensely. This kind of feels like getting all worked up about the Carabao Cup or something, where we've seen these players, com- uh, sorry, we've seen these teams competing with all of their best players, and now we're not going to get that. So it does lose a little luster, even with the rosters being maybe more intriguing than I expected. It's not like we're going to see the same caliber of competition we did in 2017 when you know Puerto Rico had Correa and Baez and Lindor all in the same infield. Now, first of all, there are only going to be six teams in this tournament, and it's just not going to be the players we watch on a day-to-day basis. And also, like I am a big fan of many other Olympic events, so given that I watch baseball 180 other days of the year, I probably will not be devoting too much of my Olympic watching time to baseball. When there's also, you know, the 10k to watch, and the fencing, and swimming, and all the other sports. The 10k. I, I watch every minute of the 10k. Yes, indeed. <laughs> And you cannot make fun of that because because <laughs> wow, you probably watch 6 hours of baseball a night. So what is watching men run around a track for 26 minutes?
0: I think I think you have found one of the very few sports that's more boring than baseball in long distance. Your room. move there
1: was to make fun of how much cycling he watches, yeah. Zach, not how not how much baseball. <laughs> Come on.
0: Yeah, you're not yeah. you're not firing on full cylinders either in term either in terms of of your rejoinders or that bizarre take which I would have expected from Ben, but <laughs>
2: Well, Zach's a track guy, so I guess it makes some sense. But I wasn't even, you know, before the rosters were announced, it it came as sort of a surprise to me that baseball was back in the Olympics. I didn't really know that this was happening again because it hadn't happened since 2008, right? And it won't happen after this year. So it's this weird little blip where baseball is back and it's sort of like problematic Olympics to begin with. I was just reading the other day about how few people in Japan want the Olympics to be played. So I don't know whether that colors your enjoyment or investment in this at all, but it's it's unusual circumstances, especially in that it's not actually 2020 anymore. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I... I think a lot about how if the revolution ever actually did come, I'd get guillotined as soon as they start purging people. And one of the reasons is I love the Olympics. I know it's awful. I know it's a a human rights catastrophe and I can't help myself. And I'm sorry. And you know, I'll go to the gallows if that's that's where this ends me. I can't change who I am. Um, so let's Let's try to keep this moving. Uh, this might be the dog days of summer for Major League Baseball, but this is crunch time for college baseball and softball. The Women's College World Series has just uh, wrapped up. We've seen tons of coverage and discussion uh, of of the Women's College World Series, which I learned actually draws a larger TV audience than the Men's College World Series. Uh, so some of the breakout stars. Uh, Oklahoma won it all most outstanding pa- uh, player Giselle Juarez went 5-0 with 37 strikeouts and an o ninety 90 ERA uh, in the Women's College World Series. Montana Fouts of uh, Alabama great name there threw a perfect game against UCLA and Odyssey Alexander a pitcher from James Madison of all places uh, keyed their surprising run uh, was probably the breakout star of the tournament. What these players all have in common is their pitchers and this is something that I've always found intriguing about softball is you could throw the same pitcher out there every single day. And how demoralizing, uh, must that be? If you're coming up against the team with, you know, Montana Fouts or Monica Abbott or whoever the, the dominant pitcher of the, of that year is it like as a baseball guy, it almost doesn't seem fair that you're allowed to start the same person every time.
3: It's like, uh, the old World Series back where they, uh, when they didn't care about pitch counts or pitcher health when Chrissy Mathewson could throw, what, three shutouts in five days in the World Series. And I think it's really fun to be able to get to know these names better over the course of weeks. Uh, Montana Fouts, I, I watched this incredible video of her, I think from a couple years ago, putting a stack of cinder blocks over the middle of home plate while she was warming up so she could make sure she wasn't throwing over the heart of the plate and only hitting the corners. And I want to see that taken to MLB and every other level of baseball because I think as long as you avoid the heart of the plate, you know, it's hard to hit, to barrel up a home run. So I think it's been fun learning about these players over the course of the tournament as we get basically every year because the cycle of college graduations means there's always a new class of pitcher, a new class to, to learn.
0: That's one way to increase offense. I was going to say cut down on pitcher injuries and cut down on relievers by making all baseball players throw underhand, but we could cut we, we could um, cut down on strikeouts and, and bring offense back up by just putting a giant stack of cinder blocks on home plate.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like a, the late Mike Marshall's usage back in the 70s at his peak where he would basically pitch every day, although he was a reliever at that point and he was pitching multiple innings, but not starting a game. But even in that era, he was pretty unusual and unique. And of course, we're nothing like that now. So I guess this would be sort of what we all want in that we kind of lament the loss of starting pitchers going deep into games and how that kind of is the protagonist of the typical game, and it's not quite as fun. Maybe if you have ten pitchers being used in every game, and everyone's kind of interchangeable. Although I guess there's probably some happy medium where you don't necessarily want one pitcher pitching every inning of the team's games, old Haas Radborn style. Maybe you want a little bit of variety, ideally, but somewhere in the middle between just uh, faceless interchangeable relievers and same pitcher dominating in every single start would. Probably Probably be best.
0: All right. Uh, so the ladies have wrapped up, but the boys are still going. We've still got two rounds of the NCAA tournament left. This weekend is Super Regionals, where we're going to have uh, we have sixteen teams left. There are going to be eight best of three series at various sites around the country. Uh, and in order to preview that real quick, we're going to bring back Ben's favorite game: college baseball player. Or all right. So I've prepared for each of you four names. And each name is attached to either a a hero from last weekend's regional round or a character from a CW original show.
3: I didn't realize I was going to get wrapped up in this. Ben, do you want?
0: Oh, yeah. Yes. Ben, do you want to kick or receive? You want top or bottom of the inning?
2: I will lead off.
0: All right. Ben, your first name is Kevin Cops. Kevin Cops. Kevin
2: Cops. All right. I'm going to say college baseball player.
0: He is indeed a. College baseball player, Arkansas right-handed pitcher, SEC pitcher of the year. Here, here are his numbers: seventy-nine and two-thirds innings pitched, twelve and zero record, eleven saves, one hundred twenty strikeouts, three earned runs. You, you go
1: twelve and zero, and then That's the honor awesome. that you get is being thrown into a game where Ben Lindbergh has to find out if you're on like a random actor on a TV <laughs> show.
0: That says that <laughs> says way more about person. Ben than it does about Kevin Cox. <laughs> Zach true. knew this one. Zach, do you know Josh Chan? Josh Chan.
3: I do not, and I'm trying to figure out if you're going to trick us by just making all of these college baseball players. I will say that uh, this fine gentleman is a member of a CW original show.
0: That is correct. Zach Cram ties it up. Josh Chan is from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, played by Vincent Rodriguez III. Ben, Tim Elko. E-L-K-O, Elko.
2: Sounds like a college baseball player to me.
0: He's a college baseball player. Ole Miss infielder who hit three home runs last weekend, two of them grand slams on a torn ACL. So he's not playing infield anymore, but he is uh, uh, usually an infielder. Pretty incredible story. Uh, Zach, Alex Danvers. Alex Danvers.
3: Alex Danvers. I will say, just to stick with the streak, I will say that Alex Danvers is also from the CW.
0: Yes, Alex Danvers is from Supergirl. She's played by Shiler Lee, late of Grey's Anatomy. Ben, your next name, Nico Cavadas.
2: Wow. Huh. All right. Well, I might as well keep things going. Stick with college baseball player.
0: Nico Cavadas is a college
2: baseball player, Notre Notre Dame first
0: baseman, 21 home runs on the air. He is what uh, we might call the Not quite the Dan Vogelbach uh, body type, more the Hunter Renfro body type. He's a beefy dinger dude. Uh, He hit one over the batter's eye, estimated 460 feet uh, in Notre Dame's undefeated run through the regional.
3: If he's Hunter Renfro's body type, does that mean he also looks exactly like Mike Trout?
0: From the neck down, yes. (laughs) Less so in the face. Uh, Zach, River Town.
3: River Town. This sounds so obviously like a CW character that it has to be college baseball. It's too obvious otherwise. Rivertown College Baseball.
0: That's right. Rivertown is the Dallas Baptist University outfielder. Dallas Baptist is the only... Organization that creates more CW names than the CW itself. Uh, he homered in the regional final against Oregon State as DBU came back from five nothing down to win eight five and advanced to the Super Bowl in the second time in that the was some history.
1: Amazing game theory by Cram right there. He just played you, bro. He played He's, you. I,
0: yeah, <laughs> I'm. I was. I set this up. I set up this order to try to keep Ben from playing the Quizmaster. And Zach has outplayed the Quizmaster by leaps and bounds. Ben, your last last name, Stephen Shock.
2: Stephen Shock. Man, I'm feeling a lot of pressure here to keep this streak going. I guess I'll go with CW.
0: That is incorrect. Stephen uh. Shock is a college baseball player. He's a relief pitcher for the University of Virginia. He's the the guy with the beard and long hair who everybody compares to Kenny Powers because everybody who watches college baseball is Saw a picture of him. (laughs) Yeah, the the Dippin' Dots guy. During uh, Virginia's win over South Carolina on Saturday, he said a fan tried to bribe him with Dippin' Dots to throw the game. uh, And Shock closed out the game, chucked his glove into left field, and then uh, told the ESPN... Or the SEC network broadcasting crew that uh, he figured out that if Virginia kept advancing, he'd kept keep getting per diem and could buy his own dip and dots. So
3: not to be confused, to- not to be confused with Static Shock, who is a character on WB, which then became the CW. So I can see Ben's confusion. That was a fun. Animated I'm sure
0: that's what it was. Superhero. All right, Zach, you have to you have to uh, get this or no? If you get this one right, you win it all. Rip Hunter. Rip Hunter.
3: Rip Hunter is a college baseball player.
0: Rip Hunter is a character on CW's Legends of Tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) played by Arthur Darvill. No. Which means we have to go to a (laughs) tiebreaker.
3: I'm sure you have many more names for rating. Do we get a runner on second to start extra? Yeah, we got a
0: runner on second. Okay. So I need both of you. I guess Ben can go first. Uh, Go closest to the pin on Notre Dame's run differential over three games this weekend.
2: <sighs> wow. Okay. Well, I don't know if
1: they... You, you really made a tiebreaker. Like you envisioned this scenario and wrote this tiebreaker <laughs> <Yes>. down? <laughs> yes. Over
2: this weekend. So uh, do we know? Uh, no clues, I guess? How many games is this? They played They played three games and three they won them all. Three games and they won them all. Okay. All right. I will say 25.
0: Zach, what do you have?
3: So I know that there was one game that South Alabama won by like 19 runs or something. So I know that there were some high scoring games this weekend, but I did not see any from Notre Dame. I will say that they won by an average of 13 runs per game, 39.
0: Zach is closest to the pin. Notre Dame outscored its opponents this weekend by a total of 45 runs. Whoo! wow. All right. Thank you all for playing along with college baseball player or and indulging me. Uh, I'm going to shut up for the rest of the show, particularly because we're going to do a quick update on our twenty five under twenty five list from last week. I I think I, I guess we're all on speaking terms now. It was a little icy in the in the MLB show slack for a little while last weekend. I think
2: the, the criticism we all collectively received from people on Twitter brought us together. I felt closer to you guys after weathering that, I think.
0: Well, I stand by the list for the most part.
2: Oh, I do too. If yeah.
0: only because most of the people who were yelling at you guys were, they agreed with me. But uh, so, yeah, it's been a bad week for, for most of our top 25 players. Uh Brian Hayes missed hit a home run, but got called back for missing first base, uh, which seems like a fundamental error that I hope he will improve on through the rest of his career. Nick not Madrigal. repeatable
1: small sample size there, but he did hit a home run, which is repeatable. Yes. I feel good about it.
0: I, I think on balance it's a positive, but it's uh embarrassing. Nick Madrigal, who I didn't know had muscles, uh tore one of them, tore his hamstring and might be out for the season. And Jared Kelnick, all y'all's guy the the number, what was he, 11 or 12? Back to AAA. Yeah,
2: that was a setback, but, you know, it's a, a long-term competition here. We're in for the rest of Kelnick's career, not just the short term.
1: I wasn't in it because he was hitting 111 and then slipped down to 097, Bowman, I'm in it because of what happens when he bounces back next year. You know, Mike Trout hit in the low 200s, high 100s in his first there you go. Up.
0: That's the comp you want to bring. Anybody out. can do it. If Trout can do it. <laughs> Jesus Christ.
3: It is really fun that uh, Trout did that. So now we can turn to that comparison every time any prospect struggles. <laughs> you also have the Alex Bregman had his two for 38 starts. So you can always point to that one, too. It, it's nice to have those two examples, kind of like when we got rid of the four pitch intentional walk. And everyone turned to the exact same one or two examples of when batters hit those for singles. Yeah. You only really need one, and you can just turn to that in perpetuity.
1: Or like how Kawhi developed a, a, an elite jump shot after not being able to shoot at all in college, and was just like, anybody can do that, right? We
0: can just develop a jump shot. I mean, how many years has Ben Simmons been in the NBA now? I'm still still waiting for for him to develop the corner three.
1: Oh God, is Jared Kelnick my Ben Simmons? Maybe I need <laughs> to back Kelnick off isn't that even take. As co-
0: People are getting on Ben Simmons for shooting
1: like 38% from the line. Jared Kelnick would Stop. kill the shooting. Shut shoot. his mic. Cut his mic. No Sixers talk. No Sixers. A hard rule here. I'm just
0: trying to get ahead, man.
3: Can I rant about the Kelnick situation for a second, even uh, separate from the 25 under 25 list? Which is, I saw some folks saying, well, see, the Mariners didn't manipulate his service time because they had to send him down. And to that, I say, do you not remember... The Mariners president admitting that he was manipulating Kelnick's service time. The Mariners believed that Kelnick was ready. They brought him up after, what, six games at AAA because they believed he was ready the entire time. So just because he struggled upon his first exposure doesn't mean that they knew that was going to happen all along. And that's why they didn't call him up. And as I pointed out on this podcast before... If ever you were going to manipulate someone's service time, this was the exact wrong year to do it because AAA wasn't playing any games for the first month of the season. And I don't know, would Kelnick have struggled if he didn't have to essentially take a month off from facing regular pitching? I don't know. Maybe he was going to struggle anyway. But I think to say that we're going to not let him face pitching for a month and then call him up and then, you know, get worried about when he struggles, like Maybe that's why you call him up in the first place and let him take his lumps. He he was ready last year and they didn't do it. So I think to ex post facto say he wasn't ready and the Mariners are absolved of their their breaking the rules, I don't think is a proper uh, assessment to make of the situation. And I am, I don't know, I'm running out of steam here at the end of my rant, but it really bothered me to see that kind of reaction to Kellnick being sent down because it was admitted it was on video. So I don't know. That was upsetting.
0: I don't think I've ever seen you this heated about something like at least not on Mike.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with Zach's interpretation there. I mean, it's definitely true that we are sort of spoiled when it comes to prospects and assuming their readiness. But I think in Kelnick's case, it was pretty clear, like the Mariners made it clear that No matter how he did, they were not gonna call him up and that it seemed like they thought he was ready and it just wasn't the top priority. So I think that's true. We can kind of keep both ideas in our heads, maybe that the big leagues are hard and that not everyone who is a top prospect is ready or or gonna be a world beater right away. But also it seems like the Mariners thought Kellnik could be good right away and just we're not gonna call him up under any circumstances.
3: I will say though If you Google Jared Kelnick's name, the first thing that comes up is a link to the All-Star ballot because he is a candidate. So if you want to cast your vote for Kelnick,
1: you can go ahead. Dang, I thought you were going to say it was our 25 under 25 list. I was about to get real pumped.
0: (laughs) Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about it, releasing their own. We're, We're setting trends here for the first time, I think, in the history of the MLB show. All right. The other big story apart from you know our opinions. The second most important thing to to happen in baseball this week is uh the sticky ball situation has has heated up a little bit. Uh, I'm going to get the ball rolling by uh citing something Pete Alonso told reporters this week which might be my favorite like quote or theory by a baseball player this season. Pete Alonso said that he and many other MLB players subscribe to a theory that Major League Baseball manipulates the baseballs year to year to try to uh, suppress free agent salaries. So they juice the ball ahead of that class with Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg, and when there are more hitters set to hit the market, they uh, they deaden the ball to try to reduce numbers. So this, I think it's horseshit because I don't think Major League Baseball is that. Uh, that organized but this is skyrocketed into the realm of conspiracy theories that i believe in not because i think they're true but because i think but because they're fun this is one of my favorite like tinfoil hat things like and even i'm not cynical enough to to believe that mlb's doing this or that they could pull it off if they wanted to but the fact that this is how I think it speaks to to the state of mind of of some of the players with all this this discourse um going around or if Pete Alonso is just having a joke at uh, you know at everybody's expense that's pretty funny too but I I love this uh this angle for for ball manipulation.
2: Yeah, the Mets have made up their fair share of stories <laughs> this this year what with the the hitting coach they invented a while back and then the debate about uh, the Mammal that was cited in the dugout supposedly as a cover does story Noah for some sort of to turn off. Yeah, yeah. And, does and and Noah Syndergaard, Syndergaard too. needs to
0: turn off Pete Alonzo's Wi-Fi at night so he <laughs> yes. stops. So, reading about baseballs.
2: So, so, I don't know how serious this was. <laughs> and I would love to know how widespread this belief actually is. It seems like one of those situations where Peter is like, yeah, we all think this. And it turns out that he is the only one who thinks this. I don't know. But I think it is interesting on multiple levels. I also think it's extremely far fetched first just because it assumes a level of competence with MLB and its ability to control how the baseball behaves that I don't think the league actually possesses so we are assuming here that the league has been you know pretending not to know what the heck is going on with the ball at any given time and that in fact they are masterminds and they can control it with such a level of of precision that they can adjust it year after year but I think that is far-fetched. Also, just the idea of, you know, free agent classes, unless you can do this in the short term, really, it would be tough to plan this out in advance because a lot of times we look ahead to a, a big free agent class. And then by the time that free agent class rolls around, it is much diminished by extensions or injuries or, or declines. So it would be hard to plan that out in the future. And this is also assuming that the teams that would be bidding for these players' services aren't adjusting in any way for the behavior of the ball. And the fact that, you know, if offense is down, if home runs are down across the league, then you're still judged relative to other offensive performers. So it's not just like, you know, removing some homers would mean that position players get paid less. So there are, I think, a bunch of problems with this. You know, there's also the fact that if you're juicing the ball one year so that you, you know, suppress pitcher salaries like, well, the hitters are racking up stats during that season. And so that's still going to help them when they get to free agency, even if it's not their walk year. So yeah, I can't say I buy it, but I enjoyed the theory. And I think, as you said, it's reflective of the mistrust between the players and the league at this point as the tensions ramp up with the CBA, CBA negotiations taking place. And it's also reflective of the fact that MLB has done a terrible job of explaining what is happening with the ball. So Alonzo has reached the conclusion that they actually know what they're doing. I have reached the opposite conclusion. But either way, there's been a lack of transparency that lends itself to conspiracy theories.
3: Yeah, I'm with Ben in that I think MLB doesn't know what it's doing with the ball, but I understand the impulse to try to ascribe meaning to these seemingly random fluctuations. I know this year MLB more intentionally set out to change how the baseball behaved. But I think in previous years like 2019, it isn't really clear why the balls became juiced. It's just that it happened, and I think it's almost more comforting to think MLB is intentionally acting as a malicious actor, but at least we know why it's happening than to just think it's happening randomly because, you know, we're all on a small ball floating throughout the universe. And I think the like the most difficult part of understanding that the ball changes so drastically year to year, month to month, game to game is how it's changed how I think about elements of baseball history that I just grew up with, like, you know, reflecting on the 2011 World Series and did the ball that David Freeze hit just over Nelson Cruz's glove. uh, Was that more juiced than every other ball in that series? And would the Rangers have won the World Series otherwise? And you can really spiral thinking about individual plays that would have changed baseball history and how we think about teams and important players. and it's really difficult if that's all random. So I understand the impulse to try to to put that act on somebody as uh, the the impetus for making it happen as a even if it leads to seemingly far-fetched conspiracy theories that You know, Hanlon's razor says never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by incompetence. And I would say MLB is incompetent in how it's handled the ball over
2: recent years. But again, I see where he's coming from. I wonder how much of this also stems from Pete Alonso coming up in the all time high home run environment, setting the rookie record with 53 dingers. And then seeing fewer of those balls fly out in the past couple seasons, I mean, he's still been a good hitter, particularly this season, still hits for power, but, you know, not as much as he did from the get go. And as he approaches arbitration, I wonder if he feels like that is personally targeting him and players like him, you know, having come up in the offensive environment that he did. So some of it might be that, too, but. I enjoyed how you know he was asked about foreign substances, the topic of the day, and he just completely pivoted to this like even bigger conspiracy that is uh, hiding under the surface <laughs> here. He's like, "Yeah, I'm fine with the sticky stuff. Like pitchers need to control the ball, but what you're all not talking about is the much bigger Nobody's problem." Nobody's <laughs> talking
0: about the mainstream media yeah. is not not talking about this. I yeah, there is like a. a a see you and raise you element to, yes. to that answer that i really enjoy uh speaking so all this discourse could we call this theory Pete gate
2: <laughs> yeah i think so
1: okay cool no um, no so, no where's the voice in the room ben don't encourage him <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right so let's pivot from Pete gate to what we were actually talking about, which is the the sticky balls. Um, MLB is starting to crack down on foreign substances, and we're starting to see some pressure on some of the uh, higher profile suspects. Shall we say this is like right? I've been my interest in this is not necessarily in terms of, or my interest in the, in this is not really about finding and outing individual violators. It's Keeping this on the fun side of the divide between fun and moral panic, because I lived through the steroid thing once and I just don't want to do it again.
3: And the parallels are very clear in that it is seemingly a widespread problem tacitly approved by Major League Baseball, by front offices, by clubhouses, that then leads to crackdown on individual, quote unquote, bad actors. And I think there are certainly differences between the two panics mainly steroids can have adverse health effects that I don't think, at least to my knowledge, spider tack does, unless you know they make your hands really sticky and you can't type on your phone, you smear it everywhere. But I think those small differences aside, the general shape of the early reaction looks the same. So I had the same thought, Mike, that we're only like a week or depending on where you peg the starting point maybe you go back to trevor bauer a season or two ago but we're still pretty early on in this discourse in this uh, understanding and i'm already almost tired of it so like i've said a couple times on this pod before i am interested to see if mlb actually ends up cracking down with suspensions because that still hasn't happened yet and until it does i will believe it when i see it but It seems like pitchers are behaving otherwise now. They're already backing off as a result of this threat. And maybe that's all MLB needs, but I'm still kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop.
2: Yeah, and it sounds like from various reports that it could happen as soon as next week or this month, but... As you said, we've heard a lot about how MLB is going to be cracking down on this, and it hasn't happened yet, so there is sort of a wait-and-see element to it. But I think one thing about this that lends itself to finger-pointing and singling out individual pitchers is that we do have these spin rates right and they're not a perfect indication of who's using what or just stopped using what you know you can have spin rate fluctuations from outing to outing based on how hard the guy is throwing in a given game or weather or just how spin rate is measured in a particular park but when you do see sizable fluctuations that can be kind of the the smoking gun when it comes to did this person just start using something or start using something that enhances his spin rate more, or did he just stop doing that? And that's something that we never really had in the PD era. I mean, you know, well, eventually, that's not true. well, eventually you would get tests and, and guys actually getting popped. No, but you'd get prior to testing get people
0: talking about Luis Gonzalez's. Uh, forearms. Yes, it, people it would. talking about Mike Mike but, Piazza's back knee. Like, yes. that's what this is. Looking at no, Trevor Bauer's spin is... rate from start to start is like the dorky version of Piazza's
2: back knee. <laughs> it's the dorky version, but it's also maybe the more accurate version. I mean, in the PD era, it was whenever it's the
1: scientific <laughs> version of that yes. pure art form that you're describing, <laughs> which is staring at Mike Piazza's
2: back. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. It, I'm not saying that people didn't get singled out before. I'm just saying that in the past it was because they bulked up a little bit or they suddenly started hitting home runs or something, which, you know, could have been an indication, but also could not have been. And you never got the other end of that, which was that you didn't know who was clean necessarily. Right. I mean, people thought that certain players were clean, but there was no proof of that. You could take things and, you know, just not be a home run hitter. We saw that happen in many cases. So in this case, you might actually get some indication of who was using this stuff or who was using the more effective stuff and who wasn't. Because if there is a real crackdown and suddenly you see certain pitcher spin rates plummet and others not, even though they're under the same scrutiny, then you know that might tell us something. So that I think lends itself to sort of singling people out in a way that maybe the banging scheme with the Astros did too, because you could go back and listen to that and hear that and people quantified how many bangs were, you know, when various Astros hitters were at the plate and that sort of thing. So that I think sort of sets both that sign stealing scandal and this scandal apart, maybe from previous instances of cheating. Like all of this goes back to the beginning of baseball, whether it's sign stealing whether it's you know players trying to take whatever substances were available at the time to enhance their performance or apply substances to the baseball like all of that dates back to the 19th century really but now in these specific cases we might actually have some evidence because of this technology that's available now and so i think that'll be interesting but also that leads to a temptation to really make this about the pitchers as opposed to the teams and to the league itself which clearly fostered an environment where this kind of thing was encouraged and not really policed in any significant way. And seemingly that certain teams were very much encouraging it or actually supplying or synthesizing the substances. So to make it all about, oh, these dirty cheaters, you know, I think would really ignore the role that MLB has played by not being proactive about preventing this and individual teams in, you know, rewarding pitchers for doing this obviously. And then also maybe directly <laughs> encouraging them. To yeah.
0: Unfortunately, that's how MLB's handled every single systemic scandal, like right. dating back to what cocaine in the eighties. Like they've said, it's just mm-hmm. this, this one guy, whether it's the, uh, the Gabe Kapler and John Coppola stuff in, in Latin America or steroids or the Astros being singled out for electronic sign stealing or whatever. Like they're, This is the M.O. is to Oliver North somebody and then act like everybody else had no idea it was going on, particularly the teams. And and I think that's kind of horseshit. I mean, the other thing I think is horseshit is like I'm I'm all for reducing the effectiveness, like this could be the subtle reduction in in effectiveness of pitchers that throws the game back into some kind of balance, right? If you take a couple hundred RPMs off, whether if you reduce command just a little bit, maybe we see a few more walks. Maybe we see a few more mistake pitches and balls getting hit harder or pitchers having to make that, you know, make that compromise between command and control or command and, and stuff and spin and movement. Like I, I, think that would probably lead for a slightly more uh telegenic entertaining form of of baseball but also like let's just change the rules like if everybody is says that like certain things are or thinks that certain things are okay just for grip reasons or safety reasons like then let them use that because i think where you get in a lot of trouble is where you rely on norms where you should have black letter law and here we're going to have the trifecta we're going to have the olympics we're going to have college baseball we're going to have me comparing something to hockey uh on this show but the nhl playoffs here are down to their final four and it's just been dog shit all the bad teams have been advancing because the referees don't call penalties in the playoffs because that's just not how it's done they say if you call the rule book then you're going to have a power play on uh you know you're going to have 10 power plays a game or, or something first of all like that sounds awesome but also so change the rules or call the rules and everybody will adjust. And I think there just needs to be clarity on what's okay and what's not. And if we want to have some version of, you know, if you want to have like the pine or not the pine tar, the, uh, the, what is it? Sunscreen and rosin, like, uh, mix your own cement on your forearm stuff. If you want that to be okay, but you want uh spider tack to be out of the rules that are, or, or to be out of bounds, then just allow the one thing and don't allow the other. So everybody's on the same page and everybody watching knows what's going on. But apparently that would just be too simple. So we're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to have recriminations and, and all sorts of uh, uh, ambiguity over, over who's following the rules and who's not and who, which rules are worth following and which ones nobody cares about.
3: Yeah, I think Liam Hendricks came out either yesterday, today, uh, saying that MLB should crack down but also provide a universal substance that all pitchers can use because they need something to help grip the ball better and i think the issue is that as we've talked about technology has just made the sunscreen and rosin mixture so much more efficient as everything else in the game has become more efficient uh sticky stuff has as well and that has led to i i think We wouldn't be talking about this if offense were at a normal level, but because offense has declined so significantly, as we've talked about a bunch on this pod, we're kind of casting around for ways to fix it. And one of the prime culprits is all the
2: sticky stuff. Yeah, I think MLB deserves blame for not handling this sooner. That said, I don't think, you know, if you say, well, this has been going on since time immemorial, why didn't MLB do this decades ago, a century ago? Well, they did do it a century ago with with spitballs. That's when, you know, this foreign substance rule was on the books. But obviously, it's never really been observed that closely. And I think that circumstances have changed. And that's why this has suddenly become an acute problem and something that's getting so much public and press scrutiny is that. The advent of StatCast and TrackMan, which measures spin rate, that really changed, I think, the understanding of how much that matters, not just for getting grip, but for getting movement, for getting whiffs. And that has led to this arms race when it comes to using more and more effective sticky substances. So I think we've gone from, oh, yeah, you know, we know this is happening, but everyone's kind of okay with it and it's not that big a deal to now you're worried about high strikeouts. You're worried about low batting average. And you have teams and players really pushing the envelope when it comes to using more and more exotic substances to try to get that spin rate edge. And now that that edge has been quantified, I think even hitters who are maybe okay with some substance just for safety's sake, even they are are thinking, okay, well, things have swung too far out of whack. And so I'm fascinated to see if this crackdown occurs. Does it help restore the balance, as you were saying? Like, it's really hard to tell. What the net effect would be, because if you look at some of the studies that have been done and some of the analysis that shows that you can enhance spin rate by you know hundreds of rpm with certain substances and how much that can enhance a pitcher's performance, well, you might think it it would be a a big dip then, but we still don't know how pervasive those like really effective substances are, how many pitchers are actually using those things. And there's so much else going on, like this focus on the foreign substances really ramped up in the past few years. But the strikeout rate increases have been going on really throughout history, but really steeply for the past 15, 16 years. So it's not just that. So I I doubt that that one thing would swing things back into balance and that even if you do crack down and you root out some of that use, you know, you're still going to need to be talking about all of the various other rules, changes and suggestions for increasing contact that we talked about. So I'm really like kind of on the edge of my seat when it comes to like seeing what the actual you effects of this are. You put some pine tar, pine tar on your seat so you don't slip <laughs> off. Yes.
0: Um, yeah, you bring up a good point about the sort of creeping nature that this is not a new problem. And here I think there actually is a good parallel to be made between the foreign substances and steroids because like PEDs aren't something that Jose Canseco invented in 1989. You know, like Joe DiMaggio was getting the JFK injection every week when he was uh, when he was playing in like the 40s and 50s. And so it's just something that became a problem when it became too big and obvious to ignore. And now they need to do something about it. And like, I'm not picky about what, like, I think they just need to do something. I don't, I care less that what the solution is, as long as there's some kind of clarity and guidance. And I fear we're not going to get that. I fear we're just going to get, oh, this is something that only Garrett Cole and Trevor Bauer were doing and not something that, that actually levels the playing field and clears the air and, 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 you know resolves the situation.
2: Would be nice if they would be transparent about how they're going to handle this, which is probably too much to hope for. But there's just such a, a weird kind of covert element to the way MLB makes these changes. Like with the ball change this year, for instance, where it was like a memo to teams that was leaked in some places, and then you had this strange spectacle of like MLB.com stories that were citing. AP reports about a leaked MLB memo about this. And it's like, (sighs) just put out a press release or something. Don't make us sniff around and have everything be leaked. So if this is another situation where it's like, you know, a memo is sent to teams and various sources report on that, I mean, Rob Manfred should just come out and say, hey, yeah, this has, you know, been a problem and it's been happening for a long time, but things have changed. And that's why we're doing X and Y to try to correct this. But I don't hold that much hope that that will happen, but this is the environment in which the pizza gate type conspiracies can flourish when it's all sort of behind the scenes and and not just stated right up front.
3: We're going to need to come up with a new name for that because Ben just said pizza (laughs) gate and my (laughs) eyebrow shot up to my head because I forgot what we had discussed (laughs) 15 minutes ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's not that thing. Um, Yeah. That I'll say this and then I think we can move on to our last segment. Like transparencies. I've used this example 50 times when we've been talking about the juice ball. Uh, About 10 years ago, offense was way down in college baseball. They announced that they were going to change the ball, that they were going to lower the seams, and it was an offense shot up, and it was hugely popular, and everybody was on board. In Japan, they juiced the ball without telling anybody, and it became a huge scandal. And just telling people what's going on, people will, the consumer will adjust. They'll appreciate the proactivity of a league or a governing body that actually is trying to make some kind of proactive change. And... I, just the this compulsion for for operating in the shadows just doesn't I don't understand it it's self-defeating and we're this is just another uh, another example of a of, of really bad habit that MLB seems to have gotten into all right that'll bring us to the final section of the show it's Zach do you want to sing it no okay The Unnamed Weekend Preview segment. Zach, you did want to use this segment as an opportunity to talk about one of our show's favorite players.
3: So I actually want to ask this question to Ben, which is Ben, tonight, Jacob deGrom is pitching against the Padres and Shohei Otani is pitching in an interleague game, so he will pitch and hit. So, Ben, which game are you most excited for?
2: I think you know the answer to that. It is, of course, Otani. Must see start every time out. And he's going against the Diamondbacks. So I'm hoping that that will be weak competition for him. They just fired their hitting coaches. So this is a a good, favorable matchup for Otani, I think. But I think for for most people, certainly for playoff implications, you would probably have to go with the Blake Snell, Jacob deGrom, Padres-Mets matchup.
3: Yeah. And DeGrom now has a 0.62 ERA. He has thrown consecutive starts without allowing any runs, including against those Diamondbacks and including against the Padres just in his most recent start. And I don't think we're quite there yet where I'm eagerly watching every start because of the Bob Gibson ERA record or the Dutch Leonard ERA record, which I like to remind Mike about. But I think we're kind of getting close to that point if he can sustain a sub one Dutch
0: Leonard it's
3: Dutch Leonard and five and 10 K's that's my brand uh I think as long as DeGrom can sustain a sub one ERA through the all-star break that's when I would get really excited he has now thrown 58 innings he has allowed four earned runs and I think every start is just must watch because Unlike, say, a chase for a 400 batting average when, yeah, you can have an 0 for 4 game and it doesn't ruin your chances. For DeGrom, the stakes, if he's going to really challenge this record, are so high every game because he gives up one three-run homer and all of a sudden his chances basically are kaput. So every base runner essentially matters because he can't let anyone get on base lest a ball sneak over the fence and his chance is ruined. So that's why I think let alone the Padres portion of it, and they're maybe my favorite team to watch across the sport, I think DeGrom himself is must-watch for that reason.
0: Yeah, you have four earned runs in 58 innings pitched. You know who's not impressed by that is University of Arkansas star Kevin Copps, <laughs> who's allowed three earned runs, as we said, in uh, 79 and two-thirds innings pitched.
2: Maybe Jacob deGrom is a CW character. I don't know, but he's
0: I, he's got the looks. He's a handsome man. He could be the, the dad on Riverdale. Sure. Right?
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing, of course, that makes it even more impressive is that his stuff has gotten better again, just when you think it couldn't possibly. I mean, he is throwing harder this season than he did last season. His average fastball velocity is over 99 now. This is the fifth consecutive season where he has raised his average velocity and he is about to turn 33. So this just boggles my mind. And really, like his last couple starts have raised that bar even more like he he threw 33 pitches 100 miles per hour or faster in his last outing. That is the most of any outing. In the pitch-tracking era since 2008, no one has thrown more 100-mile-per-hour-plus pitches in a single game. He averaged more than 100 miles per hour in in each of his past two starts, which is unprecedented. That has never happened in the pitch-tracking era for a starter. So it's just incredible. He's in a class by himself, and... As I've said before, it it makes me nervous because we've seen so many hard throwers get hurt and he is the hardest thrower of all. But it's really just amazing. I mean, between that and between the off-speed stuff and the fact that he's got this great curveball that he never even has to throw because his other stuff is so good. It's just like a dominance that we have really never seen. So if he does challenge that record, then it will be entirely deserved. He seems like the sort of person who should not allow any runs because that's how good his stuff is.
3: And I will say the fact that he has already been injured this year could weirdly help his low ERA case just because it's easier to have an extreme ERA in say 175 innings versus 220 and that would make it easier because he's already missed some time. And even with that, like as long as he doesn't get hurt again, he will still easily clear the qualification threshold given how deep he goes into games. So I'm not concerned about it from that perspective, but if he goes say 180 innings this season to break Gibson's record, he would need to allow fewer than 19 earned runs the rest of the way. And if he allows say 18 earned runs, The rest of the way in his remaining 122 innings which would get him to 180 that would just be an era of pause while my internet loads that would just be an era of 1.33 so that's still like an absurd era to expect from anyone over that many innings but 1.33 is doable and with every start he makes the rest of the way if he throws another scoreless start next time then that would go up to like 1.4 ish that he would need to sustain. So it gets easier every start out as long as he keeps not allowing any runs. And I realized that I started this segment by saying it's too early to think about DeGrom seriously challenging Clearly it's record. not. Here Clearly I, you're here thinking I about go. it. Yeah. yeah, here I go with the math. So maybe I'm countering my own expectations, but it, it's hard to temper them. It's exciting. It, it's hard to watch DeGrom pitch every five days and not think he's capable of shutting everyone out.
0: All right, I, my, Series of the week is uh, LSU versus Tennessee in the uh, Knoxville Super Regional. LSU head coach Paul Maneri, legendary uh, coach, national champion at LSU, successful at Notre Dame before that, uh, coached numerous, numerous uh, big leaguers, is retiring at the end of the season, which could be on Sunday or it could be a couple weeks from now. So uh, we'll see how long that that continues. Ben, is your series whatever Otani's playing, or do you have something different? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that's pretty much it. Good. He's on this uh, Friday starting schedule now, it seems like. So it's nice to be able to pencil that in. But it's not the most exciting slate of weekend matchups. Not a lot of like great division rivalries or matchups between teams that are contending. I guess you have Boston and Toronto, which is a, a pretty decent matchup, and Cardinals-Cubs. So there's some stuff to watch there but i don't think you can top Degrom and otani going on a friday night garrett richards also pitching on friday night
3: to complete the podcast trifecta
2: oh boy that's uh that Mm uh
0: um boston toronto series should be good robbie ray's throw robbie ray having quite a season uh back from the yeah not the dead but the can't find the strike zone so good to see that all right. This feels like a good place to end the show. So that will do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me. Thanks to Montana Fouts, Jared Kelnick and Pete Alonzo for giving us stuff to talk about. Thanks to Bobby Wagner and Mike Wargon for producing today's episode. And thank you for listening.